0: Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. I am sure you have heard by now that the show is celebrating an important milestone this year, 25 years. Barbara started the show in a college radio station. We were there at KUCI for a very long time up until the pandemic. And now we are here on Patreon. And this month, April 20 of 23 marks the one year anniversary of our Patreon page. So we're celebrating all month long with gifts and thank yous to you, Barbara and I, did a special anniversary show together this month and i did a special episode just for the patreon page on self-publishing and uh, randy Kraft's book off season so we talked about marketing self-publishing all that that is all just up on the patreon page for patrons and best of all we're giving out books and bookmarks all month long although the month is drawing down so if you sign up this month at the ten dollar level or above and write to me This is key you have to write to me you get a surprise book in the mail and a writers on writing bookmark if you're an existing patron as well at that level or above of course please write to me and you also get a book if you join at the five dollar level or you're an existing five dollar patron and you write to me i'll send you a bookmark so if you've been on the fence about joining check out our patreon page at patreon.com writers on writing and see all the benefits up there. This is a great time to join. Okay, onward. So back to my favorite forum today, we are diving into the mysteries and magic of the short story forum. My guest is Kenan Orhan. Kenan is a Turkish American writer and a recipient of the O. Henry Prize. His stories have appeared in the Paris Review. Massachusetts Review, Perry Schooner, The Common, and elsewhere, and have been anthologized in the best American short stories. Kanan received his MFA from Emerson College and lives in Kansas City. I Am My Country is his first book. These 10 stories take place in and around Turkey, and they are sometimes funny, they're sometimes absurd, they're often heartbreaking, and they are Occasionally a little terrifying, but they definitely transport you to this country that sits on the border of east and west and make you feel all the tensions that come with living on that knife edge with a leader like Erdogan at the helm. Uh, The collection is published by Random House and we'll talk not only about it, but about all the things that go into making short stories work and the many decisions Kanan had to make along the way. Nan Orhan, welcome.
1: Uh, ah, thank you for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I've I mean, longtime listeners will know what a f- fanatic I am for the short story forum. So anytime a collection comes across my desk, especially when set in one of my favorite countries, we traveled to Turkey back in 2019, which was a, a great oh, introduction. Wow. Yeah. I, I have I have a lot more work to do there because I, I absolutely loved it. So this was right up my alley. So I'm I'm excited to talk about it. But I thought before we dive into the collection itself, if you could just spend a few minutes talking about your relationship with Turkey and, you know, how much time you've spent there and your connection to it when you're here in the US, because I'm always interested in writing about a place as both an insider and an outsider. And and I'd kind of love to hear that journey.
1: Yeah. Actually uh the the way you kind of put it there at the end is really a very perfect description of it for me so my mother's side of the family is turkish they came from istanbul to america in the in the 60s for just for kind of job opportunities didn't there are a lot of turbulent times in turkey um but they weren't really political exiles or anything just came over uh, got a job at ku med my my grandfather did so he came over but we grew up with this sort of half turkishness Kind of on our periphery, except when we went to Turkey. So we grew up in Kansas, I and mean, my father's not Turkish; he's a Kansas farm boy. But he was also the stay-at-home parent for us, so we didn't really grow up learning Turkish. But we did go to Turkey just about every summer. So it was kind of this weird, like, part of us that didn't feel quite part of us. It still felt a little disjointed, kind of like a, a an asleep limb, but. We were still exposed to a lot of things, I think, if you're just a tourist to Turkey, you might not be exposed to because we had a lot of relatives over there that we would visit. So we would get kind of the insider view of Istanbul while also doing a lot of the very touristic things. You know, we'd go check out the Hagia Sophia, check out Sultanahmet Jami, all these the sunken cisterns, the, uh, the couple of charse, you know, all this grand bazaar, all the kind of cliche things that one must do in Istanbul. But we did it with... Istanbulites who are, you know, kind of chiming in with their own, their own opinions and, and a lot of kind of cursing along the way, um, <laughs> a lot of bickering over prices and things. And it was a lot of fun for us because it felt like this sort of aspect of ourselves that we were constantly discovering each summer. Like I said, we grew up with my mother working, so she wasn't with us during the day. Um, so it kind of it all it had this kind of mystique of usness without it being us me and my brothers and only kind of as we stopped going to turkey as kind of political things started to become a little more turbulent we all three of us have started searching in different ways to kind of hold on to this past that is leaving leaving our memories leaving who we are because it's been a, a long time since i've been to istanbul actually and this this was a way for me to sort of explore that happy time for me that golden those golden moments because I, I was so I was so enamored, Istanbul especially was such a different place than uh, suburban Kansas City growing up.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. So has that always kind of been the the area and concern and and subject matter of your writing, or or was this collection really kind of represents the tricky part? And then you've got you know whatever else you have, whatever side hustles you have going on <laughs> the side in your writing.
1: It's a little that way. A little other things were going on because. I started writing in undergrad just before I really became aware of the political climate in Turkey. You know, for me, I was very privileged. We were were foreigners coming to visit family. I didn't care about politics. I was young. I didn't, I wasn't very uh, informed. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, there are bombings all the time. And we don't like the president. He's a dictator. And this like stunned me. I didn't, I had no idea. And I was already, I'd already started writing. So it was I started writing about Turkey to kind of address that, but before I was writing, I like to uh, I like to call it kind of this weird Jim Shepard plus Ernest Hemingway imitation. That all turned out very bad. I I didn't write particularly good stories, but I was obsessed with writing about places that were elsewhere. I didn't. I've never written a story set in Kansas. Um, it's not that it hasn't interested me. There's a lot here. Uh, Kansas has a really strange history, and I think. There's a lot to work with, but there's something about being kind of too intimately tied to a place that makes the writing more difficult for me. So I was writing about places as as far-flung as Norilsk, Russia, Svalbard, uh, Norway. Uh, I did a story about a boxer in 1930s Shanghai. That was the bad Hemingway coming out of me. Mm -hmm. But I I was doing all of this for a couple of years before I really sat down and wrote my first story set in Turkey. And that, that kind of was a watershed moment ever since then I've been writing almost exclusively about Turkey.
0: Well, that's probably a good opportunity to introduce the collection. And it sounds like, and we've kind of tangentially maybe introduced uh, the titular story in the collection, because it sounds like some of that was was drawn from your own experiences. But yeah, to, to kind of talk a little bit in general about these 10 stories and what beyond Turkey adheres them together because I can see a lot of recurring themes, but but kind of talk about it a little bit more specifically.
1: Um yeah, so it's a little difficult because sometimes they feel very, very far away from me. Like it's it's the first one I wrote in 2015. So that was a long time ago. I was very young, and it it's very politically overt. I don't think there's any subtlety to it. And that's Soma, which is the one about sort of the mining disaster that occurred the year before in 2014. And it was just this super stark, kind of very obvious consequence of a really ineffective and corrupt government. More than 300 miners died in an explosion in a situation where essentially safety measures were not being properly taken because the government sold the mine, privatized it to a corrupt kind of crony. I think I lucked out that a lot of people really liked that story because I, I think looking back on it now... It strikes me as too politically overt. And it also strikes me as very different from kind of what I've been trying to do with the other stories, which is this interest with a a bit of a trick of magic, kind of delighting. It's rooted very heavily in realism. It's kind of dark. There's not a lot of humor. Whereas I think a number of the other stories, uh, as as I entered grad school and got exposed to authors like Italo Calvino. I started becoming more interested in, in writing stories to have fun, both conceptually and just, just the joy of writing has really been kind of an important aspect for me. And so then you get these stories like uh, <laughs> a florist who's just absolutely had it. She's lost her mind because there's a stray dog outside of her flower shop who won't leave her alone. And so she just kind of goes off the rails and decides to plot an assassination attempt using the dog which is a little bit more absurd. And there's a lot of, I think, humor in that piece. It's a little bit dark comedy. But then I also, I like to kind of explore that magic that Istanbul and the rest of Turkey holds for me in kind of these surreal ways, because it's still, it feels surreal to me. It, it, like I said, it exists in my memories and they're always kind of fluid. And so reality becomes a little fluid with some of these stories, like a a man who learns he can talk to birds right before the 1950s pogrom, or uh, a woman who starts finding instruments and then and a composer in the trash bin and starts hiding them in her ever expanding attic. <laughs> it's uh, it's an interest in sort of fun, I would say is is crucial to me.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that I can't remember who said it, but writing in the dream state, these really felt a little bit like you were writing in the dream state. And now that you're talking about how memory and you're living in that kind of childhood memory scape of istanbul it makes total sense to me that that that's kind of its own dreamscape right of childhood oh absolutely um, yeah because you you don't understand the rules you had no idea what the politics were
1: right uncles make jokes that you don't quite understand answer yeah. always, there's always like a, a it's like a three-headed body is all the ants all at once they're always saying here have more food here have more Turkish coffee here have more tea you know and and so it kind of comes out in in a little of the a little bit in the descriptions of things in these stories things are always just I think one nudge away from floating off into uh surreality
0: yes so it sounds like the the earliest story was written in 2015 and then you were writing all the way up until sort of the publication of the book. So they were, they were written kind of over the course of seven-ish years, you would say?
1: Um, sort of. Most of them were written in about three years. And then I kind of took a break from them to work on the expansion of one. I, I expanded three parts in which Emre kills his daughters into a novel. And I'm still tinkering around with that one, although I've got a different project that occupies my mind now. And then, so I had written most of them and then, out of nowhere, during the pandemic, I I just wrote the Beolu Municipality Waste Management Orchestra, and then we sold the collection. It's a little strange for me thinking about conceptualizing some of these stories because I was um I was in my early twenties for for a good deal of them, and so I I hope they stand up. That's one of my I will admit it's one of my kind of insecurities, and I get nervous about it. I hope that they're I hope that they don't show too much my age, my youth.
0: Well, I think they both, they both stand up individually and they stand up together in conversation with each other because there's so many, uh, I mean, apart from setting and locale and this magical quality that we've been talking about, there's also like reverberating themes and, you know, you can see that your, your brain was on kind of similar, but parallel tracks, you know, mm-hmm. if you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, they all seem in conversation with each other, and I was also wondering if you kind of always had a mind towards them adhering as a collection and writing with with that in mind, because not not every short story a collection will make, right? I mean, they have to right. they have to have some conversation with each other, and so I was kind of wondering at what point you knew, okay, this is this story needs to start talking to these other stories.
1: Hmm. That's a really good question. And I hope I'm smart enough to answer it. It's it's a little difficult to say that I knew from the outset, or, or there was a moment when all of these stories started to talk to each other for me. Um I think a lot of the unity in them outside of, you know, literal subject matter is just they were all so conceived out of this frustration and this kind of hopelessness without wanting to submit to hopelessness in a way, because for me, Turkey has started to feel like it's changing out from under me. Everything that I always thought about it or or conceptualized its political history has either turned out to kind of be propaganda or very, very fragile, something that is not, you know, as stable as we kind of hope um, and political identities over there are shifting really quickly. But for someone kind of coming of age and figuring things out, it can feel very like, like a big loss. It it becomes like grief. And so I think the real thread here for a lot of these stories is that, that kind of drive to just keep going. I, I suppose, it's very difficult for me to put into words that, that drive to keep going in spite of overwhelming odds or in spite of hopelessness. And I haven't really ever experienced Turkey not under Erdogan's thumb. He was elected the first time in 2002. So he's been there for you know two decades, which is most of my life. And that political force and that shift has been ever-present. And I think that's probably what I'm reacting to more than anything. So the conversation, the stories all have is, is sort of this frustration and this hopelessness for people who are there or trapped there or feel like they're trapped there, but they don't have you know a nice home to go back to, like I do. they don't have Kansas to flee to, and so what do they do and and that's that's been the big thread, I think for me,
0: well, it's interesting because I feel like at a much smaller scale, much, much, I think you know that's kind of what some Americans are going through now too, Older oh awesome. Americans, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like if I had read this collection 20 years ago, obviously wouldn't have existed 20 years ago. Yeah, I would have had a different kind of, you know, oh, I'm sorry for you. It sucks to live over there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, I think I would have,
1: too. I mean, absolutely. Certainly because I was less politically intelligent, but also just, you know, 20 years ago feels very different. Um, And now I think, you know, living in Kansas, on the border between Kansas and Missouri, where you know, there's two states that are kind of enacting very similar policies to what I've seen, or, or we look at policies in other states that sort of prevent travel for health care and things like that. The inability to flee is is something that strikes us here, too. We think of America as this one solid thing, but each state is could be its own country. I mean, theoretically, yeah. if you, especially if you consider like the size of countries in Europe or the Balkans um, population wise, it, it can feel like you're trapped just if you're in Kansas, too.
0: Yeah. So I came across, I mean, years ago, I'd come across this, the Joy Williams list of eight things every short story needs. Mm -hmm. And I came across it again, like two or three months ago. And then when I was reading your collection, she just kept coming to mind because so many of your stories completely embody what's on her list of eight things. And I had not been able to kind of give language to some of her eight things. And then so many of your stories did it. So I I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about some of the very elegant decisions that you made in regards to some of these eight. We don't have to go through all of them. And then some of the ways you broke her rules in kind of really interesting ways. And the first one that comes to mind is that Somewhere on her list, she had this: every story should have an animal within to give its blessing to the story. And your use of animals in here often made me just literally laugh out loud. I hate the expression "laugh out," but I, I actually was because they're they're so kind of over the top use of animals in really interesting and cruel ways. And I was so fascinated by that, and and I I mean there are some exceptions. Not every single story has an animal, but they often have, and they're funny. They're not, I mean they're not funny animals, but they're just interesting use of animals. And so first, I I'd just love to get your take on, yeah, introducing some of these very interesting animals in the story, and and how you use them to such effect.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it it inherently gives me a lot of credit as a writer, um, so I'll I'll try to live up to that. Um, <laughs> it was actually quite by accident that I started realizing I kept putting animals in all of these things. Um, I think I'd written about a mule, a bull, a donk or uh, a dog, and then I had just started writing about the guy who could talk to birds, and I was like, this is really turning into quite the menagerie, and so I just kind of kept leaning into it, and part of that is. I really enjoy fables, uh, fairy tales, I'm I, teaching a, a kind of neo-fabulism or a history of fabulism course at the Kansas City Art Institute, um, where we look, you know, at the dawn, kind of all the way back to Thousand and One Nights to now, like Kelly Link, uh, Amy Bender. And it's, there's a lot of animals in there that are, you know, they can talk, which happens sometimes in my stuff. But I think animals offer a really interesting look at reminding us humans that we are also an, an animal and we have instincts. We have in, animal instincts and we have gut reactions and we we can be more one dimensional with our emotions and still be very genuine and valid about that. Um, I think contemporary short stories, uh, for better or worse, really like to look at the paradoxes of humanity and the complexities. And while I believe that that's true, I think kind of, if I believed in in an overarching humanness, it would be kind of that we, we exist as paradoxes. But every now and again, or probably more often for me, I become rather one-dimensional. And how do you do that in an interesting way for a short story seemed to be Introducing animals, um, they can they can kind of very casually remain one dimensional. We don't expect much out of them as readers, but that one dimension can can really sort of act like a lens on the dim- the multi dimensions of the human characters. Um, not that I always do that, but it is something I'm conscious of.
0: Yeah, and they're always a little bit menacing, mm-hmm. often in these stories. And uh, yeah, they ju- they just introduced such a um, you know as she was talking about. You know, to give them a blessing. I was like, this is kind of mm-hmm. the opposite of that, and in a in a very, I don't know, interesting way to me.
1: Right, especially with like Mule Brigade, where they're oh. out to go hunt all these mules, and then in the end, the mules are staring at him. I don't think, you know, without without kind of really treating the mules as a character, you wouldn't get that guilt building up in the in the narrator.
0: Oh yes, and then you know we have these bears there's a a story Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of flooding and they can't dig the graves very very deep and so the the bears are digging up these bodies and they're just yeah
1: (laughs) yeah i think i yeah i'm only kind of now realizing that the animals are a lot more menacing than (laughs) i had i had thought of them but maybe that's that's sort of the menace of nature coming out especially you know as we look at what's happening around the globe all sorts of changes and shifts human made Um, It's Almost like uh, vengeance, I guess, being reaped by nature.
0: <laughs> well, that really was how that story felt. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. <laughs> what it felt. So here, we're reaping the repercussions of of what we of what we sow here. So, yeah, that that felt absolutely true. The other thing you did, kind of interesting in a lot of these stories, is play with elevation and uh, soma. You mentioned, you know, you have these miners that are underground. And then you have this swimmer who's swimming, you know, kind of at the the equilibrium. And I think there's some play in that story, too, about getting above it all. But Muezin also does that with um, the elevation of this narrator that I want to get into a little bit more also. But was that on your mind at all these plays with getting above it, being down below it? Because it did feel like there's a lot of... And that that first story where she's a trash collector and she's kind of building this whole orchestra in her attic it just Mm -hmm. felt like there's a lot of plays with level and i didn't know if that's something that you looked back on the stories and said ah you know i did that or if it was kind of a conscious choice as you were working through them
1: um it wasn't conscious for most of them i think soma it was a it was a happy coincidence that elevation played as large of a role as it did because i didn't set out to write it that way but as i kind of realized that his interest in being an electrical engineer up working with wind turbines is a direct mirror opposite of going down underground to a mine. And while he's swimming, it is that equilibrium that you mentioned. Um, so it it, it didn't start that way, but about halfway through writing it, I kind of realized I'd stumbled on like a really nice physical metaphor almost. But with the Muazine, it was very purposeful, very conscious, because I'm playing with sort of ideas of authorial or if not authorial, I guess, uh, narrator, voice and ability and power, because though he is a a character in the story, very literally just a human being in the story, he has kind of a omniscient power to his viewing and his uh, ability to report what's happening. And he can kind of bridge space and time a little bit in what he's reporting. And, And that goes back a little bit in my mind to kind of that obsession with fairy tale and fable where a narrator can know things and we don't automatically question well how do you know that um because the author doesn't bother answering they don't they're not interested in in saying well this is why they know that they just do it and it's fun it's like a nice little trick but i'm not sure other than those two i'm not sure how consciously i did it i do like that you bring up the municipality orchestra because i <laughs> I hadn't even really thought about it this way, you know, the attic being this place until um, someone had commented to me. It's like, oh, that's, you know, that's like the brain of the house. And that's where they're, that's where all of our imagination stores. And they they came up with like these mathematical reasons for why things were happening. And I that's was right. very flattered. I I've never felt so intelligent, but I didn't try to put any of that. In.
0: Our subconscious is so smart.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the trick, the best trick an author can do is to just get out of the way of themselves.
0: Yes. Yeah, so let's go back to Muzan. It's such a great story and it does so many interesting things with point of view. A lot of these stories are told in first person, but that story is this like omniscient first person, but then it kind of breaks the fourth wall and there's some discussion of second person talking to the reader. Mm-hmm. It does all these really interesting things and I thought, you know, maybe you can kind of lay the groundwork for that story first and and we can dive into some of the elegant ways that you played with that, because it was masterfully done.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. That um, That's very good to hear, because when you set out to kind of break narrative conventions, uh, not in like any rebellious way, I'm not particularly cool when I'm doing this. Um, I don't envision myself with sunglasses and a leather jacket at a, at a keyboard. But um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it was very purposefully, I did not want to do your traditional sort of narrator. And we think of narrators kind of in the Western canon or, or tradition um, as either first person or like a very, very, very close third. Those are kind of very in right now. Gone are sort of the days of the very omniscient third person, the, the very godlike, uh, you know, it's it's not a trusted source anymore. And so I kind of wanted to fuse those. I wanted a I wanted a voice that was a character that knew things, lived in this town, knew the people, but also was talking to the audience and, and conceiving the audience, not so much as a reader, as a friend in the room. And I I was probably influenced by such books as like the Merceau investigation, which was a direct response written by Kamel Daoud to Albert, Albert Camus' The Stranger, where he kind of tells the story of the nameless Arab that the character shoots in The Stranger. And it's all told as like a confidant admitting the story of his brother to a patron at a coffee shop, just as they are keep buying him wine and coffee. He's like, let me tell you the story of my brother who got shot. That character knew more than they could have known. They were in places they couldn't have been. And I had become obsessed with sort of this... Because it it feels very it's a bit of levity, it feels like a bit of magic without actually having to break the rules of reality, although that does a little bit happen. you know it's like it's a somewhat surreal story, yeah. um, but there's never you know a wizard comes down from the mountain and teaches someone how to how to cast spells. I think there are other kinds of magic and sometimes it's just playing with with form and with our notions of them um, and getting back to the roots of kind of traditional oratory storytelling um, is a a nice way to, I think, tap into that.
0: Yeah, it did so many interesting things with point of view. And it was one of those stories that you get to the end of and you're like, how did we get here? Like a lot of stuff happened. And and yeah, (laughs) is it about climate change? Is it about an affair? Is it about and it was all about all those things. And yeah, I really enjoyed that that sort of yeah the breaking of the fourth wall the omniscient guy you know i mean he did feel very godlike because he's up in his tower and Mm, right he's a
1: man of god up in his minaret he's kind of literally over everyone it it invites that comparison i think
0: but then he's also not sexually voyeuristic but more interested in the intimacies of relationships than you think god probably should be (laughs) right (laughs) it's great the other thing that story did that i wanted to point out on the joy williams topic so another one of her philosophies about short stories and it's it's her way of talking about the difference between short stories and the novel is that she says a novel wants to befriend you and a short story almost never mm. and that feels like true in my dna but it's hard for me to figure out exactly i mean that just feels true but it's hard for me to put words to it but you so perfectly did and so I thought, if you wouldn't mind reading this paragraph that's that's in that story, it's, it's almost right at the end of it, and I feel like it highlights this point really, really well about a, a short story never befriending you.
1: Of course. So here we are, near the end of the story. If you thought this was the sort of story where two people can reconcile their love for each other and turn off the deluge, I have misled you, and I am sorry. I don't know how else to tell you that the vastness of humanity is still only a human drama, which, as undeniable as rain, is of the lowest order and small scale employed to measure the universe. I don't know how else to tell you there is no satisfying end when there is no end but the end. Still, have I not chiseled this story into the walls of my spire? Perhaps one day someone will find it.
0: I love that. So you get you get his sort of first person omniscience there. You get him breaking the fourth wall to to tell us. You get him saying, "You're not going to be satisfied with this ending," which is what I love about short stories because you're never often satisfied with their ending. I don't know if satisfied is not the right word, but it's never a neat, tied up ending.
1: It's never very comforting. It's kind of a mirror on something that you don't want to see. Usually, in my experience, the ones that I really love,
0: and it and it's this. Flat out telling you, this story is not trying to befriend you.
1: Yeah, that's was, not my job. It was pretty bleak um, when I wrote that. I was one I had to ask my partner if I was being just maybe a bit too bleak, but I, I think it played out well. And I, I'm, it was actually kind of a last-minute addition. I was having trouble ending the story. I wasn't. I wasn't sure what to do, and, and there was an ending, and I don't even remember it now. Um, and my editor at Random House said you know, this isn't really working. I don't feel like a nice close. I don't know how to feel some like emotional satisfaction. And I think they were right. And I, I'm, I'm not certain, but I think they were also expecting me to kind of add a slightly happier tone to the end or some sort of hope or expectation. Um, And then I bungled that up and just, just made it pretty despairing.
0: That's your way. I mean, a lot of these are really, (laughs) um, and I wanted to talk about that because I do think endings are so tricky for short story writers. I I always liken them to, and maybe this is true of novels as well, but short stories, you have to do it so many times because there's 10 of them, but I always liken it to, you know, gymnastics. You just got to stick the end and, Uh, and uh, it's, and if you don't, the rest of the story, unlike a novel, I think just unravels. I mean, I I just don't think it can bear its weight.
1: That's a good that's a good way of putting it. I'm probably gonna steal that now.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like yours. It's yours. <laughs> I'll be back in just a moment with Kanan Orhan talking about I Am My Country, out and available by Random House. You're listening to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. As you know, it is our anniversary month, both the anniversary of our Patreon page, which is one year, and the anniversary of the show, which is 25 years. So we have been celebrating all month long with special offers and gifts and perks extra shows up on the Patreon page, some bonus content, some content on self-publishing. We are also giving out books to existing patrons at certain levels and new patrons who sign up this month. If you write to us, we will send you a surprise book in the mail at a certain level, and we'll send out bookmarks, so write to us there. You can check it all out at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Kanan Orhan talking about I am my country. The other one that that really stuck with me and it well they they kind of all did but but one that's coming to mind right now is that that titular story that sounds maybe slightly autobiographical of of I am my country. Mm-hmm. And there's this heartbreaking I I mean I don't want to give away tons of spoilers and I don't think it does, but there's this heartbreaking sort of secret that's revealed that the the reader knows the secret, but one of the characters doesn't. And when the character finds it out, it really breaks his heart. And mm. that's kind of how it ends with him just saying, well, anyway, like, I'm trying not to let this break my heart, but it really does. And I thought that was such an effective, I mean, you you just felt a gut punch where you can't go on to read the next story because you got to just go have a drink and cry for a while. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about that story and finding finding that ending and if how you knew when you knew you had it
1: mm. it um you're correct in in kind of presuming this sort of autobiograph autobiographical aspect um it's it's slightly removed it's it's very similar to the story of my mother coming to America and going back and um back and forth back and forth for years i I've you know made up a bit but that, and that's what makes it fiction. But I think the emotional elements are, are the truest part in this piece. And I hesitate to admit, although it's, it's kind of impossible to admit, that it's so based on my mother because she's such a kind person. There's no way if there was a situation like that with her brother, she would never crush him <laughs> in that way. And so I'm not entirely sure why this iteration of the character does, except that it felt like the gut punch I was experiencing kind of coming to terms with being removed from Turkey. Um, it felt like the gut punch of like finding out that Mustafa Kemal, that's a Turk, you know, founder of the Republic, hero of the country, was not a perfect guy and did some things that are still politically consequential and causing problems. And, you know, Turkey as this nice sort of secular Western progressive who's not always the case and it, it doesn't have to be so all of these ideas about what turkey was were sort of unraveling and becoming propagandic to me and i i was trying to hold fast to really quicken whatever i could but it, it still felt like everything and the veil had been thrown off and the the true identity of one of my beloved cities was revealed to me and so i'm not sure if that gut punch was was what I was intending to do, but the narrator, the character herself is is coming to terms with something and she's not happy about it, and it's becoming this unrevisitable country. And I think she's just, she's scared and angry and and jealous, and especially, especially jealous of or envious of her her brother who still holds on to this kind of happy memory. And she wants to take that away because she doesn't have it. And that felt incredibly human to me. Um, not something I, I, I suggest people do, or or something I strive to do. But certainly, I understand envy. I understand guilt and and frustration and loss and grief. And and in those moments, we often act out in ways that are detrimental to us and to our relationships with others. Um, and so it felt it felt natural to do something like that.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your process? generally for starting a story, kind of how much you know? I mean, I'm sure everyone is different. So maybe we we could choose one of these that gave you maybe the most trouble or was the most confounding to you. But how much do you need to start? And are you starting mostly with an image or with a character? Tell me a little bit about that opening process and then how the stories come to evolve and how you work with them and revise them and all that, that kind of that big process question. And if it's easier to do that by attaching it to one of these, we can do that. Or if you have general comments, we could do it that way too. I,
1: I could, but I, I think generally they all sort of ended up following, if not the same structure, one story's system taught me how to do the next story in that when I first started these, And that's why the very early ones feel very politically overt and not very subtle and don't have that like trick of magic that I really love now is I would be reading newspapers and and articles about Turkey and there was some new catastrophe that I would have to come to terms with and I would say oh I'm going to write a story about it and you know, Soma was the kind of prime example, where I read about this tragedy And I I was frustrated and upset. And so for whatever reason, I said to myself, I need to write a story about this. So it started with an image. And it was, I mean, literally somebody else's image, it wasn't my image of um, these crying family members outside of the mine. And I looked up Soma and for whatever reason that day, there was nothing about the explosion that had occurred just a little bit before. But there was this Video on YouTube of a guy who went to the water reservoir there, and I've never seen what I mean it was electric turquoise, this water at the reservoir. I was stunned it just it like cored me this water I could've never seen something like that um and I'm a big fan of blue. I grew up in Kansas, we've got nothing but big blue skies, so it it just it haunted me a little bit, and so I was like, well, how can you have this catastrophic grimy cold dusted thing right next to the most beautiful bit of water I've ever seen in my life, and it it just started there and kind of spiraled out from that. But the narrator is is less i think strong than some of the other well, I don't know about strong, but certainly less opinionated than some of the other narrators and over time, I realized that I wouldn't start so much with an image or or a news headline as this voice would come to me. And what a great profession, right? Where you can admit that you hear voices in your head and nobody's like, you should see somebody about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And so now I've, I've transitioned, I've made the full transition, but over time it was you know more gradual where I'll just be sitting somewhere, sometimes in bed, sometimes at the computer, sometimes watching reruns of Frasier. And all of a sudden some really strong voice hits me and it's like electricity it just it just grabs me and and courses through and that's what I've become obsessed with now is I want because I I think voice is where every story starts at least for me and though I would argue that for most writers it starts with voice because voice is, is the it's the tool through which we get the story um, it's how we get the information it's it's you know it's it's biased, it where it it should be in a little bit. Every narrator is is a narrator. It's not just this story washed up on shore one day. Let me share it with you. <laughs> um, and so now I'm I'm struck mostly by voices, and it worked really well. I just I very recently wrote another story outside of this collection, and it, it had been a while. And it was just this woman, the woman's voice came on and said, "I don't know how the builders did it renovating my bathroom, but they've accidentally installed." a prison cell. And I was just, i was, <laughs> Great. yeah. So I had, I woke, I woke up in the middle of the night to that one and I've never done that. As you know, I think that's a bit of a cliche, but it actually happened ran to my desk without my glasses in the dark. I didn't know what I was writing. I wrote it down as fast as I could and wrote like a whole page and then went back to bed. Wow. Yeah. I got I lucky. I got very lucky.
0: <laughs> I know we're always waiting for those nights and you wait. Morning, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, didn't happen again. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, If I could only get that one again, man.
0: Yes. Yeah. So we were talking in a a recent show about the situation versus the story and how many, especially new writers, they're like, I got this great situation, mm. but it, but that doesn't equate to a story, right? And so right. that sounds like, oh my God, you just had this fantastic situation, but then you have to work through of what does it mean? And, and how does the character change? And mm. what does this reveal? And all of that. So tell me a little bit about that. Do you kind of write your way through a whole draft and then figure out what it was you, the story is over the situation and then revise from there or tell me a little bit about that back process at the end
1: right it's um so i i'm a huge fan of revision and and i can i can talk about that in a moment but i do want to kind of just state that heavily i, I heavily revise everything um, and i spend most of the writing doing revision and i just think that's who i am and that's the way it goes for me i've never written a perfect sentence off the bat but I think that, you know, to get to that revision part, it's not so much that you just kind of write and let the story sort of reveal elements of itself and then you kind of revise it into one, at least not for me. It's more that something subconsciously uh, is becoming the object of my obsession. And I found that that can be because I'm reading you know, certain nonfiction, or I'm watching certain films or, or ingesting other kinds of media. But something in the back of my mind is just, is there as a nugget, and it starts to resonate in the, in the scenes that come out. And so for example, with Beowulf Municipality uh, Waste Management, it was this obsession with waste, I do a lot of woodworking, and i was keeping all of these offcuts and scrap pieces so that i had like 50 60 70 pounds of wood that was completely not usable it it should have been used for, i mean for firewood um but i couldn't let it go cuz i bought that and that i don't want to lose that and so in the back of my mind was this obsession with waste and that certainly informed you know then having a character who's a garbage collector um because that wasn't exactly how it started it it started more with this idea that someone was throwing themselves out. It didn't start with my narrator, it started with the old man saying like, "Well, I'm the trash today." Mm. It's like, who would say that? Why would they say that? And it it flowed out from there. But I I don't generally start writing until I've got the bones of a story, a skeleton, and I'll write scenes not in any particular order. I'll have maybe a word document of one page of like, you know, finds old man in bin. Then Next paragraph, I say takes him up to the attic, and I kind of write the scenes as they come to me, less than trying to get to scenes, and in that way, in that way, it does create its own structure. And I start to diverge. So I guess I lied earlier. I admit that I do, I do let the story um, speak to me in a in a way, but it's usually in a subconscious effort to kind of hold on to whatever my obsessions are at the time.
0: Yeah, I kind of like that. I haven't talked to a lot of short story writers who are, I mean, it doesn't sound like a detailed outline, but a little outline, a little spine of the story, mm-hmm. at least so you know where to build out the cartilage or something. <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, I know kind of the general emotional target I'm aiming for. And if the scene changes, that's fine as long as I'm still aiming for, because I usually know about the first paragraph and maybe the last two paragraphs of a story before I start writing it.
0: Okay. Okay. And so
1: I kind of try to figure out how to get from A to B. And I don't know how many other writers do that. I haven't asked. But I've, I've generally heard, you know, people like to say, oh, you can't, you, the ending has to surprise you too, or you've, you've got to write towards an end, and then the characters surprise you along the way. And, and that doesn't generally happen because I, I kind of know what I want the end to be. And I, want, I know what I want the payoff to be most of the time, not always. And so I try to find out what are the emotional setups for that?
0: Well, that makes sense because your endings, like I say on this gymnast point, your your endings feel so stuck. So yeah, if you've been aiming for that point all the way along, it makes sense that it was there all the way along and you weren't just kind of flailing around for
1: it becomes easier. There are times, of course, where you write the end and you're like, oh, that was wrong the whole time. I, I can't believe I was working towards that and that falls flat. And then you you try to see what generally what that means is your obsession has made all of the connective points point towards C instead of B. And then you yeah. just figure out what C is.
0: But it sounds helpful to have, because I always think of, you know, the container of a short story, a container of time and a container of whatever it's about, it's aboutness. and right. So defining those two points on the timeline or on the aboutness line is helpful because otherwise, you know, you're spinning off into who knows where. And I think that's where minor characters can kind of take over and you can be like, well, this sounds cool. So I'm going to throw that in, (laughs) (laughs) which, which is okay in a novel, but in a, in a short story, it has to be so tight and taut that it doesn't really have room for, for all those digressions. I don't think so. Not a
1: few, right. You can't, you can't like let a minor character come in and steal the show, but I do, I do always love a good minor character who comes in with just a quick little, and here's something interesting.
0: Yes, little cameos. Yeah, yeah
1: that's the good way to think about, I think, other characters in a short story is nice little cameos.
0: And you've got such great titles. Titles are hard. I don't know if you can <laughs> say anything about difficult. your titles. I yes. always say short story writers, you got to come up with 10 of them instead of one of them. So. Right.
1: And then the one that like goes with all of them. And I'm fortunate that my editor both came up with the title for the story and the title then for the collection for that story, the titular story. Oh, nice. So I credit her that that because it was the birthday party, which isn't great, but not. It's not doing anything, and I I feel like I'm bad at titles, and so I kind of lean on making really long ones, like three parts in which Emory kills his daughters, or Yay. the the Municipality Waste Management Orchestra, because I think they're a little funny, um, and yes. I guess I have a bad sense of humor, um, but I. I do the one like piece of advice that has helped me with titles was uh, from my first class at the MFA. My professor said, you know, people talk a lot about titles and what's good or bad. But with short stories, people don't generally remember the titles anyway. So just as long as it doesn't hurt your story, you should be fine. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know. I like
0: that. I I like that. Good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've I've lived that way. I said, as long as it doesn't, it's not detrimental to the story. I'm okay with it.
0: Well, I feel like they have to do a couple of different things. And I mean, to your point about the birthday party, if it's not operating on a couple of different levels, I mean, maybe the title of the collection obviously is way more important than the title of any individual story. But yeah, I feel like they have to carry a little bit of weight.
1: They kind of are setting up the, they're like... If they're doing multiple things, then they're kind of winking and nudging at the reader saying, here's some aspect of something you might expect. Here's a little, here's a nice key through which you can thread some of these things. And if they're very bad, or, you know, I guess not very bad, but if they're they're not operating on too many levels, they're like, and a couple of them are that way in here where it's like the smuggler or the stray of Ankara. Although I guess the stray of Ankara could be her or the dog.
0: Yeah, right. And I kind of thought the same thing about the smuggler. I mean, yes, he was literally smuggling, but he's also kind of metaphoric, metaphorically. I don't know. I, I Oh, well, I that kind of worked.
1: Well, then I, I'll take credit for that. Sure. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> and also character names. Character names are hard for me, aside from, from story names, character names. And I don't know. I don't know. I have to admit Turkey well enough to know if some of these names are super common in turkey or if you had to struggle over some of these names but they're great
1: thank you it's um yeah it's a it's something that's not really ever talked about in you know in in workshops and stuff or character names except when it's like you have too many ch starting names or something like that Um, yeah but you don't want especially with an audience that might be unfamiliar you know how much do you say okay i should still try and pick names that make sense in these settings names that would be used, not like super unique Turkish names or things like that. But I I, I admit that I mostly just went with names of people I know um, who were about the same age as some of the characters because I because I don't know what names were popular in Turkey in the 60s. So I, if I had a character who's, you know, in their 60s now, I name them after my grandma or something. Because, That's good because I yeah, don't know. <laughs> I think it's great advice is to just, if you know people in that area, think of the age and then use that name because you could at least be like, well, I know at least one person like that. But um, other than that, I did have to, for the smuggler coming up with Alexander because the Turkish version is Iskender, and the Kurdish version is Aksander, which is Alexander R. Alexander. And that was kind of purposeful in there because it's, it's a question of identity and Aksander and gets called Iskender by the Turkish characters because they're kind of, Racist or or ethnicist against Kurds, yeah. But I don't know how valuable that is to all audience members. If you if you know, I think it adds something. And if you don't, it's still it's something you could discover maybe.
0: Yeah, I feel like I did kind of get that. I wouldn't have known that, and then kind of did get that. So yeah, I think that's yeah that's that's another way that you can play with names on a couple of different levels is through status and dissing somebody. And yeah. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. Especially in any country that has like multiple language going on, like Turkish, you know, in Turkey, there's Kurdish, there's Armenian, there's Greek. um, There's some uh, Romani, there's uh, a little bit of Bulgarian. um, There's uh, there's a lot of Arabic, uh, especially with, they've got like 2 million or some Syrian refugees. So it's, names are actually really important because they all have kind of slightly different versions of the same names. Yeah. And you can Learn a lot about a character if you're in the know. And if you're not, you know, I hope I did a good enough job bringing you into the know. It's it's difficult, I'll admit, conceptualizing stories in Turkey about Turks for an American audience.
0: I guess we should use our last couple of minutes together to talk a little bit about publication finding agents, any advice you have along those lines? So you, you got your MFA and I don't know if through those programs, it's a little bit easier to meet agents and make contacts. And I know that, that Andrew Greer picked that, that first short story for the, for the best of collection, which has to be useful. (laughs) That
1: was, that was nice. It was a good little, you know, so much of this field is, is the rare, like nobody, sits over your shoulder and says you're heading in the right direction once a week. And so having these once a year big things, you're like, or maybe once every few years, those you have to make those last for a while. Publication, I was encouraged in undergrad uh, when I switched from a history major to a writing major by my professor there to just submit uh, any story I was proud of to any place and aim really high because you never know. And I, I do, I do maintain that She was probably a little too generous with some of my work, Um, but I do maintain that aiming high is really good because truly editors change at places so frequently. You know, you could send a story you're really proud of to this no name place as well. And they could say no. And then an editor at a huge magazine says, yes, I think it's significantly more up in the air than people realize, uh, or at least starting writers realize it's easy to write it off and say like, Oh, well, you only appear in the New Yorker if you've already had six books and you keep appearing in them and they only pick the same people. And it, it can feel that way, but it, if you just stick at it, things can shift. I think this is one of those fields where really success is, is significantly more likely if you just don't give up, um, which is kind of... That feels a little lame saying that because there's a lot of other factors, of course. But I think the only thing you can control is, is to keep going. You can't control who's the editor of where, when. And especially at like college magazines, university affiliate stuff, those are shifting all the time. But I I always maintain that you've got to submit a lot, submit often. And that's what I was doing. And I, I was very fortunate to kind of hit a home at the Massachusetts Review. Um, they were kind of my first big break in my opinion I was was the first one I was like very very thrilled about and I felt like ah this is a game changer and then they published another one because they liked that story and then that one was selected it was Soma and it was selected for the O'Henry Prize and that mm-hmm. was where my agent found me and though I'd written that story you know in undergrad it wasn't picked up anywhere until some other stories were picked up and then Massachusetts picked that up and then in 2019, after I'd already graduated the MFA, um, it was in the O'Henry Prize stories. Um, so I got my agent that way with a story that was already five years old. Um, so it's a it's a really slow, but I, I don't think I met any agents because I was at an MFA. Although there are certainly programs, I think, that are kind of inherently geared that way, but, but not mine.
0: It's so funny you should say that's a slow process. I'm like, damn, that's fast. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's relative, right? Depending
1: right. on how old you are. It's uh yeah. It's a uh, right percentage of my life, maybe. Or well, I admit this. I'm an incredibly impatient person. I hate when like I send an email at the end of the day because then I'm like, well, of course they can't get back to me until tomorrow. It's the end of the day, but inside I'm like, why can't they just reply right away? Why are they not writing? Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I need to know the answer.
0: I think we've all been there, and especially, I mean yeah the world has gotten much faster, so those of us who grew up on snail mail were like, right, right oh my God, we're you know things are too fast, too fast. Well, are there last minute pieces of advice, wisdom, writing advice, publishing advice, anything that we we didn't get to talk about that we should talk about?
1: I don't know for sure. I mean, you've asked a lot of great questions i I don't know if i if I hammered it home enough, but i I do think it's crucial just thinking of who I was, you know five, six, seven, eight years ago um first interacting with writing and what i would have wanted to hear from someone in this position is that um you know there's not a lot in this that you can control and i know i just said that but what that means what that translates to me is that you'd better really just be writing for yourself more than anybody else
0: god that's you know?
1: true and yeah. because like you know you got to be proud of the work you got to want to like if you're not writing for you you don't want to sit down at the computer and write the store sit down at your journal and write it because it's becoming work instead of play And that's how I've maintained this is, this is all play for me, which is nice.
0: You're right. You've got to be in it for the love of the work and nothing else because uh, it shows. It does. And also
1: it's few and far between when you get the stuff. Although when it, when it rains, it pours, right. That's the, I feel (laughs) this has been a phenomenal month for me. I feel so like appreciated and seen as a writer and, and, you know, those moments can come and you've really got to revel in them. And so I am a kind of unabashedly at home. I, to my partner. I'm always like, "I'm oh, I'm so good. Look at me. Look at all this stuff I
0: You should. Yeah. Well, you have. you have, you to, have, to, you because have to because yeah, it'll have be a to.
1: couple of years before you hear it again. So
0: No, it's a masterful collection and as you can tell I absolutely adore it. Tell us how we follow you the kind of best way to to see where you're appearing and follow what you're doing and all all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, so I'm over on Twitter uh, as kind of the best place to see what I'm doing as a writer um, at Orhan 93 But if you want to just, I found that I forget what books I read unless I keep a log of them, and I found the easiest way for me to always have that log, since I always have my phone, is to just have an Instagram of essentially just books I've read.
0: Oh, Um, I love that. So
1: if you're ever interested in the kinds of books I read or what has been influencing me, Um, that's also Kenan Orhan 93, but that's just on Instagram. And I don't do, I don't do a lot of stories. I did my first reel recently. I'm not a big (laughs) social media person. So despite the fact that it would help publicity, I'm not very good at it, but I just post pictures of the books I'm reading or teaching.
0: I'm so glad you said that because I wanted to talk about, you know, and ask you, and we kind of ran out of time to talk about what you would be, what you're reading. And so there we go. We got it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, d- check out the Instagram. There's a lot of great books, if I do say so myself.
0: Well, this was a huge pleasure. Kanan Orhan, we will we will follow you. I, I know there's going to be many more books to come, so we'll hope to talk to you again.
1: Well, I'm very flattered. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pure delight.
0: That was Kenan Orhan talking about I Am My Country. The collection is out and available now. Published by Random House. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always follow our websites. com, Mine is stone.com. You can always follow the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify and Stitcher. And you can follow our webpage, which is WritersOnWriting.com Up there you will see an archive of all of the shows going back to 2001, uh, over 900 and some episodes up there that you can browse through. So check out the uh, the website there for past interviews. And uh, as always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him, travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. He is also on Patreon. You can find him up there and support his work. Is some great typewriter soundtracks that you hear on this show. He's got many more of those up on Spotify. So search out Travis Barrett. That's all the time we have for this week. Stay tuned. We'll be back here with you next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.